And today we're going to be studying one of the most important events in the Bible, the Passover. It is the Old Testament model and picture of the gospel, the work of Jesus on the cross on our behalf. It is the event which breaks Egypt's hold on the Israelites and sets them free. And as we left our study last week at the end of chapter 10, we saw Moses give an awesome reply to Pharaoh who yelled at Moses, if I ever see your face again, I'll kill you. And Moses replied, it shall be as you said, Pharaoh, you won't see my face again. And contrary to what you might expect, Moses doesn't actually leave the conversation with Pharaoh at that point. Chapter 11, where we're gonna begin today, opens with the phrase, and the Lord said to Moses. But if you go into the original Hebrew, it can very legitimately be translated as, and the Lord had said to Moses. And translating it that way makes everything else make a whole lot of sense in this chapter, and so that's how I believe it should be interpreted. So we'll begin that way. And the Lord had said to Moses, I will bring one more plague on Pharaoh and on Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will surely drive you out of here altogether. Speak now in the hearing of the people and let every man ask from his neighbor and every woman from her neighbor articles of silver and articles of gold. Now, now please know, this is not a situation where God is telling the Israelites, hey, here's the thing. You guys know you're gonna skip town, so this is a perfect chance to go borrow some stuff from your neighbors. That's not what he's saying. God's telling the Israelis to tell their Egyptian neighbors, we need some silver and gold before we leave. It was to be a condition to them leaving Egypt And firstly, it would prove historically and in the textual account just how desperate the Egyptians were to get rid of the Israelis. They're like, we will pay you to leave because Yahweh had so completely obliterated the gods and country of Egypt. But this silver and gold is actually going to come into play much later in the Exodus account. It's gonna have a sanctified purpose eventually. So keep that in mind. Verse three And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt by reputation. In the sight of Pharaoh's servants, those are the other politicians, and in the sight of the people. Then Moses said to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, about midnight I will go out into the midst of Egypt and all the firstborn of the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne even to the firstborn of the female servant who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the animals. There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as was not like it before, nor shall be like it again. All the firstborn would die. Not just the firstborn of the Egyptians, but all the firstborn. The Egyptians were under a death sentence as were the Israelis. Why? Because there's typology in play. Are you and I born under a death sentence? Absolutely, absolutely. But thankfully, for Israel and for us, God continues speaking. Verse seven, but against none of the children of Israel shall a dog move its tongue. In other words, a dog won't even growl at an Israeli. Against man or beast, that you may know that the Lord does make a difference between the Egyptians and Israel. 
And all these your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me saying, get out and all the people who follow you. And after that, I will go out. Then he went out from Pharaoh in great anger. And I just want to draw your attention back to something, just give a little breadcrumb here. If you go all the way back to verse four, notice that the Lord says about midnight, I will go out into the midst of Egypt. I will go out. That's gonna be important, we're gonna come to that. You might be beginning to get an idea of where I'm gonna be going with that. Popping ahead to verse nine. But the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not heed you so that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. So Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he did not let the children go out of his land. So we find God saying, I'm gonna make a difference between the Israelis and the Egyptians, but it's not gonna be arbitrarily. The reason the Israelis are not going to be touched is because God is gonna give them an instruction to follow. Because if they don't follow this instruction, their firstborn is gonna die as well. Continuing straight into chapter 12, now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt saying, this month, shall be your beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. So God institutes a new calendar for Israel because he wants their calendar to be based around commemorating his redemptive work in their lives. He wants their calendar to be based around them remembering what he has done for them, how he's brought them freedom. And at this point, I need to give you a heads up of where we're going because we're going to see parallels throughout the whole text here. The Lord is going to talk to Moses and Aaron about a ritual called Passover in which lambs will be slaughtered. And these will be known as Passover lambs. And to really understand this passage, here's what you need to know, and it's the first fill-in on your outlines. You need to know that the Passover lamb is the definitive Old Testament picture of Jesus. The Passover lamb is the definitive picture. It points to Jesus in the Old Testament. When John the Baptist saw Jesus approaching him in John chapter one, he cried out, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In 1 Corinthians five, the apostle Paul declared, Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. And Peter wrote, you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. In Exodus 11 and 12, the Passover lamb is a picture of Jesus. It's the definitive Old Testament picture of Jesus. Back to the text, verse three. Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying on the 10th of this month, Every man shall take for himself a lamb, according to the house of his father, and then underline this, a lamb for a household. A lamb for a household, I love that. You see, the lamb was not just for dad. It was not just for mom. Who was it for? It was for the household. The Philippian jailer in Acts chapter 16 asked Paul and Silas, sirs, what must I do to be saved? He asked about himself, and remember what they replied? They said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. You and your household. I believe that this is God's plan and God's desire for families, that the husband, the father, is to lead his family in serving the Lord. He's to say, this is what we're doing in our family, and as he does that, 
he will witness the fulfillment of Paul and Silas's promise to the Philippian jailer. You will be saved, you and your household. Dads, hold on to that promise. Pray that promise. A lamb for a household. A lamb for a household. And as we read the story, you'll find it's not because you're amazing. It's not because I'm amazing, because we're the best dad. It's simply because we say, I'm going to apply the blood of the lamb to my household. And that's what takes care of it. Hold on to that promise. I don't care how long it's been in the life of your spouse or your kids. Hold on to that promise. Write this down. The lamb covered the household. The lamb covered the household. And yes, everyone makes their own decision about whether to follow the Lord or not. But God has a plan and God has a desire to save families. He has a desire to save the household. Verse four, and if the household is too small for the lamb, let him and his neighbor next to his house take it according to the number of the persons. According to each man's need, you shall make your count for the lamb. So here's what happens if you're too poor to afford a lamb. You don't have the resources or there's not enough people in your family to justify eating a whole lamb. You're to give up. You're exempt. That's not what it says. It says you need to go to your neighbor, you need to go to the believers around you and have them join with you to help your family participate in Passover. And I believe this is a picture of the church back here in the Exodus account. If we're struggling with our spiritual issues, if we're struggling to have the Lord move in our family, be present in our family, we're struggling to lead our children, we're to ask for counsel, we're to ask for prayer, we're to ask for help from the believers around us. We're not just to say, well, I guess I'm exempt. I guess I'm exempt. We're to go partner with other believers and still pursue God's plan for our family. Verse five, he says, your lamb shall be without blemish, or perfect is what it literally means in the Hebrew. A male of the first year, you may take it from the sheep or from the goats. And some preachers point out the process of salvation that is displayed in the pronouns used in verses three through five. In verse three, it's, a lamb, in verse four it's the lamb, and then by verse five it's your lamb. And there may or may not be anything to that, but it's a picture of how a person's knowledge grows from understanding first that there's a lamb, that Jesus is a God, they might think, a way, a teacher, a prophet, a moral person. And then as their understanding grows, they realize, no, no, he's, he's not just one of them, he is the way. He's the only way. He's the way, the truth, and the life. And their final step is deciding that he's my way. He's my way. He's my savior and receiving him that way. Verse six, now you shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month. So keep the lamb from the 10th to the 14th day of the month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it at twilight. So you had to acquire a lamb on the 10th day, but you didn't kill it until the 14th day. Why? Well, our Passover lamb, Jesus, was arrested on the 10th of Nisan, the first month of the Hebrew calendar, and crucified on the 14th day on Passover. And what happened in between the 10th and the 14th of Nisan to Jesus? He was inspected. He was inspected. He was questioned by the authorities, questioned by the Sanhedrin, by the Sadducees and the Pharisees and the scribes, questioned by Pilate, and they did everything they could to 
trap him or get him to say something that would incriminate him, to find any type of blemish in him and in his character. But Pilate summed up their findings when he declared, I find no fault in this man. No fault in this man. So make a note of this. Jesus was perfect, sinless. He was without blemish, without blemish, just as the Passover lamb was to be. Verse seven, and they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel, which is just the cross piece at the top of the door, of the houses where they eat it. And when we get down to verse 22, we'll learn that God actually instructed them to pour the blood of the lamb into their basins. And a basin was something that was carved into the threshold of a house by the door. It basically served as a doormat. They'd put a little bit of water in there and when a person came into the house, they could wash their feet before entering the house in this little basin. So God told them to put the blood of the lamb in the basin, which would be essentially in the middle of the threshold, and then use that blood to mark the lintel, the cross piece on top, and the two doorposts. And this would have created the four points of a cross pointing ahead to the cross of Jesus Christ. If you hear pastors say they would have done a full cross, that's not what it says, but it would have created the four points of a cross in the blood of the lamb on their door. Verse eight Then they shall eat the flesh on that night, roasted in fire with unleavened bread and with bitter herbs they shall eat it. Now in the scriptures, fire speaks of God's judgment. And this points to the fact that on the cross, Jesus, our Passover lamb, took the full wrath of God's judgment on our sins. Leaven is used consistently as an idiom for sin in the Bible. And so the unleavened bread points to the sinless nature of Jesus. And I would imagine the bitter herbs speak of the bitter pain that Jesus endured throughout the ordeal of the cross. The sweating of blood from the capillaries in his forehead in Gethsemane. His prayer, oh Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. The whipping, the beating, the scourging, being cut off from his father as he hung there crying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then finally, the bitterness of death on the cross. Verse nine, the instruction is, do not eat it raw nor boiled at all with water, but roasted in fire, its head with its legs and its entrails. The Passover lamb had to be, in God's instructions, judged by fire and eaten completely, just as those who would receive Jesus as their Passover lamb must receive him completely. The deal is his life in exchange for our life, a life for a life. There's no version of Christianity where you can say, I would like just a leg of the Passover lamb. We'll just eat that. You can't go to Jesus and say, I would like the security of knowing I'm gonna go to heaven but I'm not really looking for anything else. I would like to know that the Lord will always be with me and help me make good decisions, but I don't really wanna do anything on his agenda. I'm looking for a God to help me complete my own agenda. The model here is God saying that that's not an option. You have to accept all of the Passover lamb. It has to all be eaten when it's offered. Verse 10, you shall let none of it remain until morning, and what remains of it until morning you shall burn with fire. It was to be eaten in one 
sitting because as Jesus gave up the ghost on the cross, he did not cry out, to be continued. He cried out, it is finished, to telestai. No leftovers of the Passover lamb were to be eaten the following day because what Jesus did on the cross was sufficient for all our sin. Hebrews 7.27 says Jesus died once for all. 1 Peter 3.18 declares Christ suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust. There is no need for him to die over and over and over again. There's no need for more of the Passover lamb the next day to cover you. He paid for all your sins as an atonement in your place. Verse 11, and thus you shall eat it with a belt on your waist or a belt made ready to travel is what it means, your sandals on your feet and your staff in your hand, so you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover because the Lord was going to free them from Egypt and they needed to be ready to go. So if you want to be saved, if you want to receive salvation, if you want the Lord to be your Passover lamb, the one who dies in your place, you have to be ready to leave Egypt. Egypt being a picture of the world. You have to be ready to say goodbye to your old life. You have to be ready to go where God calls you to go, to live for his kingdom rather than this world. And Jesus says that is the only acceptable way to eat the Passover. If you wanna eat it, you gotta be ready to go. You must have decided beforehand, I'm in, I'm in. There's no type of salvation where we only accept part of the deal. There's no type of salvation where we accept Jesus as Savior but never see anything else in our lives change because we refuse to change anything in our lives. The only way to receive Jesus is completely to give your life to him and be ready to follow him. We're not talking about immediately being perfect once you get saved. I'm not talking about all sin disappearing from your life within a week of you being saved. We're talking about these kinds of questions. Am I willing to give my life to Jesus? Am I willing to have him be God of my life? The one on the throne of my life? Am I willing to be used by God? Am I willing to go where he sends me? and do what he asks me to do? Am I willing to walk away from things and relationships if he so calls me? If we're not willing to do those things, there is no different Passover lamb available to us. There's only one who saves, and his name is Jesus, and he sets the terms. He sets the terms. So would you write this down? If we want to receive Jesus as our Passover lamb, we must be ready to follow him. We must be ready to follow him. It's not about perfection, it's about intent. If we wanna give our lives to Jesus, that's the deal. Verse 12, now notice this, for I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night and will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. Again, we're gonna come back to it, but I want you to begin noticing the personal ownership that God is taking for this 10th plague. He says, I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night, and I will execute judgment. We'll come back to that in a little bit again. As we've been saying, God is specifically targeting the gods of Egypt with these plagues. And we know that because here, he finally says it explicitly in verse 12. He says, against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. 
And think about what this plague is going to communicate to the Egyptians on a spiritual, on a religious level. Yahweh even has control over the living and the dead. He decides who lives and who dies. He rules over the afterlife. Not Anubis or any other Egyptian deity. And if Yahweh wants to, he can just kill everyone in Egypt. Think about this realization for the Egyptians. What does this mean? It means the Israelis don't even need to pick up a sword and fight for their freedom because if their God chooses to, he can just kill everyone in Egypt. He can just do that. This is what the Egyptians are facing. This is why they're panicking. They're absolutely gripped with fear and rightfully so. Verse 13, this is the key Passover verse here. Now the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And you could underline the whole rest of verse 13 here if you want. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. And the plague shall not be on you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. What is the difference between life and death? It's the blood. The blood of who? The Passover lamb. And to this day, we are saved We are spared from judgment because the blood of our Passover lamb has marked us. There's no mention of how good or how kind or how spiritual or how deserving the people in the houses were or were not because those things made no difference to whether or not they lived or died. The only thing that mattered was the blood, the blood. And to be more specific, it wasn't just the blood that saved them, it was the applied blood. They had to choose to express their faith in the saving power of the blood by applying it to their doorposts and lintel. Just as Jesus said in Revelation 3.20, he said, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, opens the door of his heart, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. You see, God does it all. God says, this is what you need to do. This is the sacrifice that I'm going to accept and judge instead of you. This is the plan. There's no part in this for you, but what you have to do is you have to believe me when I tell you this. You have to believe me, you have to act. You have to go get the lamb, you have to sacrifice it. Revelation 3.20, Jesus is the one knocking, he's the one initiating. He's the one who's gonna come in and die and he's doing everything, but what do you have to do? You have to choose to open the door. Jesus has done it all, but it has to be received. It has to be embraced by each of us. He's done it all, but we have to open the door and welcome him in. So write this down. The difference between life and death is the applied blood of the lamb. The applied blood of the lamb. And Jesus would go even further on the cross providing himself as the lamb. And again, let me draw your attention to the ownership that God is taking of this plague. He says, when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and the plague shall not be on you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Keep tucking that away for now. Verse 14, so this day shall be to you a memorial, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. You shall keep it as a feast by an everlasting ordinance. In Exodus 12, the Lord describes both the feast of Passover 
and what would go on to be known as the Feast of Unleavened Bread. In scripture, the term Passover, just so you know this as you read your Old Testament, especially the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, the term Passover is often used connotatively to refer to both Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread together. And that's kind of what's happening here. Verse 15, seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven from your houses. Remember, leaven is a symbol of what? Sin, that's right. For whoever eats leavened bread from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. And sometimes you hear messages where the pastor tries to soften this up and say they're gonna be exiled from Israel. That's not what it means. Cut off from Israel means they'll be put to death. They'll be put to death. The person who claimed to be part of Israel but did not take the Passover seriously, who did not participate in it according to the Lord's instructions, was to die. And this is still true today. He who does not take seriously what our Passover lamb Jesus did on the cross even if they go to church. He who does not receive him as savior according to the Lord's instructions will die, will die. Because the Lord is the one who sets the terms of salvation, not us. Sin is a serious, serious issue. That is what God's instruction is screaming here, that this is serious. Because if we don't understand the seriousness of sin, if we don't understand the reality that we're under a death sentence, that death is coming, we will not value the sacrifice of the one who died in our place, the one who died the death that we should have died. If you do not understand the seriousness of sin, you cannot understand the greatness of what Jesus has done for us. Verse 16, on the first day there shall be a holy convocation and on the seventh day there shall be a holy convocation for you. No manner of work shall be done on them but that which everyone must eat, that only may be prepared by you. So you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread for on this same day I will have brought your armies or your hosts, which just means all of you, out of the land of Egypt. Therefore you shall observe this day throughout your generations as an everlasting ordinance. In the first month, on the 14th day of the month at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the 21st day of the month at evening. For seven days, no leaven shall be found in your houses, since whoever eats what is leavened, that same person shall be cut off, again, put to death from the congregation of Israel, whether he is a stranger or a native of the land. You shall eat nothing leavened. In all your dwellings, you shall eat unleavened bread. And I just want you to notice verse 17. I love what God says. He says, for on this same day, I will have brought your hosts out of the land of Egypt. So you understand what's going on here? God is saying, these are the feasts I want you to celebrate. He's giving future instructions and he's saying, on this day, I want you to celebrate this because on this day next year, you will be looking back on the day I brought you out of Egypt. I love that. It hasn't even happened yet. And God is saying, I just want you to mark your calendars for a year from now because you're gonna be celebrating the anniversary of when I brought you out of Egypt. And we say it a lot around here. When God speaks about the future, he is not expressing a hope. 
He is reporting to you a fact that has already happened, that he's already made happen. He's already seeing it from his perspective in which he can see all of time and be in all of time. He is reporting future history with absolute certainty. It is more certain to happen when God has spoken it than history that happened five minutes ago in our midst. It is an absolute certainty. And every promise that God gives a believer has that same degree of certainty. Every promise God makes about heaven and what he has in store for us is an absolute certainty. Verse 21, then Moses called for all the elders of Israel and said to them, pick out and take lambs for yourselves according to your families and kill the Passover lamb. And you shall take a bunch of hyssop, dip it in the blood that is in the basin, as we talked about, and strike the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. And I just want you to notice that they weren't to paint these marks. Did you catch that? They're not meant to like use a brush or anything like that. They're to use a branch of hyssop, a plant, and they're to strike the lintel and the two doorposts, which speaks of the whipping and the scourging that Jesus experienced on his journey to the cross. There's incredible, incredible detail in this picture of the Passover lamb. The more you dig into it, the more you're gonna see. Then he says, and none of you shall go out of the door of his house until morning, for the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and not allow the destroyer to come into your houses to strike you. Now get this. Yet again, we see God's people, those who are covered by the blood, sheltered, protected, secured, behind a closed door when God judges the earth and pours out his wrath. This is just as it shall be in the tribulation. This is the model through all of scripture. The church will be sheltered with the Lord in heaven during the tribulation, having been raptured before the tribulation begins. Now if you're skeptical, let me give you this challenge. The wrath of Satan, the wrath of man, can fall on believers at any time, and it does. When you see Christians being martyred and persecuted, that's the wrath of Satan, that is the wrath of man. But read your Bible and you'll find that the wrath of God never, never falls on believers as collateral damage. In other words, God never says, I've gotta judge sin on the earth, I gotta pour out my wrath, It's just too bad there's some Christians there. I mean, I guess they're in the strike zone and they're gonna die. God never allows his people to be collateral damage when he is pouring out judgment and wrath on the earth. It does not happen in scripture. Remember what our brother Paul told the Thessalonian believers, God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. So make a note of this. As he always does, God shelters believers in a place of safety when he pours out his wrath on the earth. That's the model. If you're not convinced, search your Bibles, try and find some examples of places where God pours out his wrath and allows his people to be collateral damage. Doesn't do it, he puts them in the place of safety first, always. And again, we see more of God's ownership of this plague. Verse 23 says, the Lord 
will pass through to strike the Egyptians. When he sees the blood, the Lord will pass over the door. But then it says, and not allow the destroyer to come into your houses to strike you. Hmm, I'll keep thinking about that, keep thinking about that. Verse 24, and you shall observe this thing as an ordinance for you and your sons forever. It will come to pass when you come to the land which the Lord will give you, just as he promised, that you shall keep this service. And it shall be when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? That you shall say, it is the Passover sacrifice of the Lord who passed over the houses of the children of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians and delivered our households. As we mentioned last week, one of the reasons God does wonderful things in our lives is so that we have testimonies to tell our children and our grandchildren. That's the Lord's desire, that we would share with our family members, our kids and our grandkids, what the Lord has done to build their faith and build their understanding of the greatness of God. That's what the Lord is telling them to do here. And again, more ownership taken by God for this final plague. Verse 27 says, it is the Passover sacrifice of the Lord who passed over the houses of the children of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians and delivered the households. So the people bowed their heads in worship. Then the children of Israel went away and did so just as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. Now, do you remember back in Exodus 4, I put this on your outlines, what the Lord told Moses to tell Pharaoh at their very first meeting when Moses returned to Egypt at the age of 40? The Lord told Moses to tell Pharaoh, Israel is my son, my firstborn. So I say to you, Pharaoh, let my son go that he may serve me. But if you refuse to let him go, indeed, I will kill your son, your firstborn. And that's exactly what's about to happen in verse 29 where we read, and it came to pass at midnight that who? The Lord struck all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of livestock. So Pharaoh rose in the night, he, all his servants, and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where there was not one dead. And I don't think we could, we could grasp the horror of this night because the text seems to imply that this was a moment in time, around midnight. This was one moment over the whole country of Egypt. Every firstborn of the Egyptians died. And if you've ever heard the cry or the wail of someone in genuine grief, especially over someone dying, then you know it's one of the most haunting sounds in existence. It's, it's from a deep place within a person. And this is the sound that rose up to pierce the night from every home in Egypt, just growing in volume by the second as one more home after another discovers their firstborn is dead. And the Egyptians were, they were done. They were done. They were absolutely broken. Ma'at, the Egyptian religious system of order that they believed in was, was clearly in ruins. It was a shambles. And, and think about this, what God had done too. God had killed the next Pharaoh. Understand that. He had killed the next Pharaoh. He had killed the next in line to the throne. The next physical incarnation of Horus, the son of Ra. 
Yahweh's dominance and supremacy over Pharaoh and the gods of Egypt was total, it was complete, and it was absolutely overwhelming. Absolutely overwhelming. And then I think about the terror and the profound gratitude that must have gripped the Israelites as they hear the cries rising up from their Egyptian neighbors and those living near to them. They know what's happening and they understand why it's not happening to them. It's because the blood of the lamb is on their door because Yahweh had given them a way to be spared. So let's get to the conclusion of the issue that I've been hinting at throughout the text, the identity of the destroyer. And if you're like me and you grew up reading children's Bibles, the the infallible source of theological truth that we all grew up with, then you probably grew up being taught that this this was an angel. Usually we use the term like it's the angel of death and I don't know what illustrations you have but you always have the picture of like the, the grim reaper type angel and he's just, he's moving through the land of Egypt and you get into the text and again you realize this, this doesn't happen gradually over the course of a night. It happens in one instant around midnight and then you also notice when you read it there, there's a profound lack of conversation in there about an angel of death. It's, just, it's God taking credit for it over and over and over again saying he's the one who struck the firstborn of Egypt. And so I just wanna share a few points that you can dig into on your own time. I put some of them on your outline. I'm gonna be as concise as I can. You do your own research. And as always, you come to your own conclusions on this. This is not an emphatic theological position. You do your own research. You come to your own conclusions. But firstly, in the Old Testament, every reference to the angel of the Lord, the text literally will say the angel of Yahweh, Every reference to the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament is a reference to whom? It's a reference to Jesus. It's a Christophany. It's a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus on the earth in the Old Testament. In 1 Chronicles 21, the angel of the Lord, Jesus, appears as the destroyer of Jerusalem. The same incident is also recorded. The counterpart of that text is in 2 Samuel 24. I put the references on your outline. You can look it up later. And in those passages, the angel of the Lord has a drawn sword in his hand. And every other time in scripture that we see an angel with a drawn sword in his hand, it's the angel of the Lord. It's the angel of the Lord. It's Jesus. We see that in in places like Joshua 5.13 where Joshua encounters Jesus as the captain of the Lord's armies. We see it in Numbers 22 when he confronts Balaam. There are four places in the Psalms as well where God takes personal ownership of being the destroyer of the 10th plague. And you can look those up. Those references are on your outlines too. Four different places in the Psalms. So what what do you do with this? that it talks about the destroyer, but then it also talks about God taking credit for being the one who, who did all this. The most coherent way to harmonize all these texts together is to identify the angel of the Lord, Jesus, as being the destroyer. Jesus is God, he's part of the Trinity, and in his Old Testament role as the angel of the Lord, he's able to operate as God, but also in concert with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. And if this is a little bit confusing, you can go back and revisit our study on Exodus 3 because if you'll recall, when we looked at that text, we found that the text actually said that in the burning bush, Moses was seeing the Lord, Yahweh, 
But then it also specifically named the angel of the Lord being there as well. He's hearing and seeing both of them, Yahweh and the angel of the Lord, who is Jesus. So how is this possible? Because they're God, they're one, but the angel of the Lord is Jesus, and the other is God the Father, the presence of God, the Shekinah glory of God. And that seems to be what's at work here in the 10th plague, that God, the Trinity, is taking credit for the 10th plague. Jesus, the angel of the Lord, is the destroyer actually carrying it out. Now let's address the elephant in the room because most people won't just go, oh, that's fascinating. Most people, most Christians will start getting really tense. The shoulders start coming up. And why is that? Well, it's because most Christians have a hard time with the idea of Jesus causing death and destruction, right? Let's just call it the angel of death and give him the credit. Then, then it's a little distant from God. Maybe there's like an angel who really loves to kill people and God is like, well, I can use you every now and then, but you know, we, we can ascribe it to something else. We're okay with Jesus the lamb. Jeff, I love that part of your message. Jesus the lamb. I'm so thankful for that. We're not okay a lot of the time with Jesus the destroyer. But let me ask you, what do we think Jesus is doing throughout the tribulation? We know Revelation 6.16 says it's the wrath of the lamb. Everyone on the earth will know what is happening. It's Jesus pouring out wrath on the earth in the tribulation. Revelation chapter six through 18. What do we think Jesus is going to do to his enemies at the second coming in the valley of Megiddo? There's no battle, they're just destroyed. Remember what the Old Testament prophecies say, that the valley will be as high as the horse's bridle with blood. Jesus the destroyer. In John 5.22, Jesus himself says, the father judges no one but has committed all judgment to the son. We must understand, Jesus is the one who's going to judge those who have rejected him. Jesus. He said so himself. And we've talked at length in the past about how justice is a necessary aspect of love. Justice is the aspect of love that rights the wrongs done to the one that you love. Justice is the side of love that takes action to make things right. And so if God is love, God must also equally be justice because justice is an expression of love and sometimes that means being the destroyer. We saw it when God flooded the earth. We see it here in Egypt. We will see it happen in the tribulation. We'll watch from afar, but it will happen again. This is not unprecedented by any stretch in scripture. And if this makes us take Jesus more seriously, if this makes us infinitely more grateful to be his brothers and sisters rather than his enemies, good, good, it should. And remember that this destroyer is also the one who will lay down his own life on the cross to protect those who trust in him. It's the same one. Verse 31, we read, then he, Pharaoh, called for Moses and Aaron by night and said, rise, go out from among my people, both you and the children of Israel, and go, serve the Lord as you have said, and take your flocks and your herds as you have said, and be gone, and bless me also. Hey guys, I was prepping this, I heard a lot of commentators or pastors take amusement at Pharaoh saying, and bless me also, but 
But it's not funny. He's not operating from an ego perspective. He is an absolutely broken man, a broken alleged deity. He knows he has no hope and no power. His country has fallen apart. He's been exposed as a fraud. Nobody in Egypt is going, oh yes, Pharaoh, you're a God worthy of worship. They've watched him be completely impotent for 10 plagues now. He couldn't do anything. He is begging Moses to bless him because he's thinking my only hope is that if this guy who has the favor of Yahweh blesses me, maybe Yahweh won't kill me. That's where Pharaoh's coming from in this incident. It's his only play. Verse 33, and the Egyptians urged the people, the Israelis, that they might send them out of the land in haste for they said, we shall all be dead. The King James Version captures it Better, the Egyptian people are telling the Israelites, we be all dead men. (laughs) We be all dead men. Which is exactly what will happen in the tribulation. Those on the earth who are rejecting Jesus will know Jesus is the one smiting the earth. Revelation 6.16. But they will still not repent even though they know it's him. They will just want Jesus and God and his followers gone. Get out of here. They will continue to defy God. They'll try to kill his people. And finally, in the ultimate demonstration of their obstinacy, they will actually try to go to war with God using physical weapons at the Battle of Armageddon. The the insanity of this. And you think, how can that be? But you see the Egyptians here. They don't repent. They don't say, we need to be worshiping Yahweh. Obviously, they don't do that. They just like, just get out of here. Get out of here with your clear evidence of God. Get out of here so we can go back to worshiping our gods. No desire to repent. It's already happened before in Egypt. It'll happen again in the tribulation. As we've talked about many times, evidence is rarely the reason people don't convert to Christianity. It has to do with hardness of heart most of the time. Verse 34, so the people took their dough before it was leavened, having their kneading bowls bound up in their clothes and on their shoulders. Now the children of Israel had done according to the word of Moses and they had asked from the Egyptians articles of silver, articles of gold and clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians or fear in the sight of the Egyptians so that they granted them what they requested. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. And if you're thinking, oh, that that seems a little shady, Jeff. I mean, God is like, hey, just like pillage the Egyptians on your way out the country. Please remember this. The reason their Egyptian neighbors had silver and gold was because their country had become the wealthiest in the world on the backs of slave labor. The Israelites had been working for free for decades. They were more than entitled to some compensation. Now you might recall that this is the fulfillment of a prophecy and promise that God made to Abraham centuries earlier, way back in Genesis 15. God said to Abram, know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs and will serve them and they will afflict them 400 years and also the nation whom they serve I will judge. Afterward they shall come out with great possessions. Now why do I point that out? Because it takes us a while to learn the life-altering truth that God always keeps his promises. He always, always, always keeps his promises. And your faith begins to grow by leaps and bounds when you finally realize, oh, he always keeps his promises. 
I'm not gonna stress about whether or not God will keep his promises. I'm not going to pray and ask God to keep his promises as though he might not. I'm gonna thank him that he will be faithful because he always is. Verse 37, then the children of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Sukkoth, about 600,000 men on foot besides children. So 600,000 men, when you add women and children to that, you're easily at two million, most likely even in excess of three million. So so this is a, a massive, massive move of people happening. A mixed multitude went up with them also. So remember we talked about that. That mixed multitude means they were not all of the same ethnicity. Because if you wanted to be a part of the nation of Israel, you simply had to say, I want to follow and serve Yahweh. He's the only God I'm going to worship. You become a follower of him. You take the mark of the followers of Yahweh. Circumcision if you're a man only marrying an Israelite circumcised man if you're a woman, and then anyone can be a part of it. So it's clear here there were people from other countries, likely even places like Ethiopia, who join with Israel, and there's this mixed multitude that goes out, and flocks and herds, a great deal of livestock, and they baked unleavened cakes of the dough which they had brought out of Egypt, for it was not leavened because they were driven out of Egypt and could not wait, nor had they prepared provisions for themselves." There's so much more I could say, but because I'm a merciful pastor, we're gonna pause there for today. I'm gonna say this in closing, a couple of things. Blood cursed Egypt. You remember the first plague was the Nile and all the water in Egypt being turned to blood. And then blood cursed Egypt because they didn't have it on their doors and they suffered the death of their firstborn, but blood saved Israel. And so too, the blood of Jesus will either be your salvation and my salvation. It'll either be our freedom and our deliverance or it will confirm our death sentence because we refused to apply it to our lives. What did Israel do to earn her deliverance? Nothing. What have you and I done to earn our deliverance? Nothing, nothing. In fact, when we get to Exodus 20, we're gonna learn the little detail that when God called Israel out of Egypt, they weren't even worshiping him. They were worshiping idols because he's gonna have to tell them, hey guys, now that I've supernaturally freed you from Egypt, it sure would be great if you would get rid of those idols. I'd appreciate that. And we've only done the same thing as the Israelites. When the Lord invited us to be free, our only contribution was saying, yes, please. Yes, please. I wanna be free, Lord. It doesn't matter how you feel about what's going on around you, what's going on in your life. There's only one issue that matters. It's the blood on the door. Have you had the blood of Jesus applied to your life, to your household? Because if it has been, regardless of how you're feeling, you're safe, you're secure. You're not saved or continue to be saved because you're doing a great job following Jesus. We never graduate past our need for his mercy. We're saved and we're sustained by the blood of Jesus, by what he has done. We couldn't be saved without him and we certainly can't keep our salvation without him. He's the one who does it all. And finally, God's promises only brought the Israelites relief when the blood was applied. You know, having verses memorized And knowing God's promises, being a student of the word, is not enough. You have to apply the blood of Jesus to your life. 
You have to apply his promises. You've got to stand on his promises. You've got to walk in agreement with his word. The blood only brings relief when it's applied, when it's applied. Thank him that his promises are all true. They're not based on anything you do, on anything I do. They're based on the perfect faithfulness of God. And we can count on him. So with that, let's pray. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? Father, thank you so much for the promises of your word. And thank you that they are not things that we have to hope for, Lord. But they are things that we can bet our lives on. They are promises that we can absolutely take to the bank. We don't have to wonder whether or not you're going to keep your word, Lord. You will keep your word. Every single part of it. Thank you that we can love you and we can trust you, Father, with our lives. So, Lord, we just ask that you would help us to honor you with faith as you deserve to be honored. In the name of Jesus, would you just give us the gift of faith, remove every bit of doubt in any of us in this room, and I pray that your peace would just once again cover our minds and our hearts as we choose to believe, Lord, to believe that your promises are true to stand in them, to bet our lives on them, knowing that our faith is not misplaced. You're the rock, you're the firm foundation. You're the same yesterday, today, and forever. So Jesus, fill us with your peace, fill us with your spirit, Lord, and may you be honored by our faith, Jesus. Well, thanks for taking this time to listen and be in the Word of God with us. If you've never given your life to Jesus, then you need to go to our website, mynewhope.ca, right now. When you get there, you'll see a graphic on our homepage that says, The Gospel. Click on that and you'll be able to watch a short video where we share the best news you'll ever hear in your life. It's more important than whatever else you're doing right now. So stop whatever else you're doing, go to mynewhope.ca and click on the gospel. If God has blessed you through this message, we'd love to hear about it. Shoot us an email at info at mynewhope.ca and let us know how God has impacted your life through his word. If you're in the greater Vancouver area, I want to invite you personally to come and be a part of New Hope Church. We believe God is doing something real special as we grow together in our faith and love for Jesus, and we would love you to be a part of it. And finally, if you'd like to support the Bible teaching ministry of New Hope through financial giving, you can also do that through our website. Just go to mynewhope.ca slash give. Thanks again for listening. Thanks for being in the Word of God with us. And always remember, God is with you.